Father, being able to sing about the resurrection of Jesus and being able to sing about the triune God whom we love and serve is such a blessing, such a privilege today. And Father, we know that it is your desire and design for your people to gather in your name, to use our voices in unison together to cry out to you, our affections for you, but also the truth we believe that you revealed about yourself through the scriptures. And so, God, what a, what a good day already it is to gather in this place and to do these things that you've prescribed for us to do. And, Father, it's not lost on us as we sing about the resurrection of Jesus, that we understand its implications for our lives. How we know that because Jesus is risen, there is life in his name. The greatest enemy that we can imagine is death. And the fear that it is to us and, and the stronghold it becomes to us that we do so much in our lives to try to ignore it and we try to do everything we can to prevent it, but the reality is it's coming for us all. And Lord, we are terrified, not just at death itself, but the manner in which we may die. And Father, we confess to you this day how hard it is to grapple with death of loved ones, of people that we know, even to think about our own selves dying. And yet, God, you encourage us to fix our gaze upon not the reality of our death and the imminent nature of our death, but to fix our eyes on the fact that Jesus crawled into a tomb and got back out, that he is risen from the dead, and therefore death no longer has a stronghold over us. We no longer need to live in fear because though we die, yet we shall live. As these bodies waste away and as the outer person becomes less and less, we also know that the inner person is becoming more and more. We know that the Holy Spirit that indwells us who believe, that we're being renewed after the image of Christ. We know that as we behold your glory, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another day by day. Lord, we know that we are growing stronger in you, though the outer self is wasting away. And so, God, fortify your people. God, strengthen us, I pray, with gospel hope and gospel truth that because Christ has come crucified for our sins, resurrected for our life, that we can have hope, we can face whatever awaits us, the chaos which is everywhere, the death and injustice and all kinds of evil that we see. We know that you're putting an end to it all. So, Father, we thank you for what Jesus purchased new creation life. Now one day there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. All these evils will come untrue. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Instead, there will be a, an overwhelming sense of joy for you have completed the plan of redemption you sought to complete. And so I pray, Lord, that we as your people would go out into the world emboldened by these truths and I pray, Lord, that we would go out of salt and light, that we could herald and proclaim what amazing hope is offered in Jesus Christ to a world which is so broken. I pray that we offer Christ as the healing agent to satisfy our deepest longings. Lord, embolden your church, empower us. And as we come to your word now, we ask God, do for us and in us all that we need. We don't even know what's best for us, but you do. So do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone.
I want to welcome you to church today. And uh, if you're visiting with us, you're new to our church uh, here at Golden Hills, I do want to welcome you and just thank you for being here. My name is Phil, and I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. I have the privilege of uh, preaching God's word today. Um, you'll Next week, we'll have a, a guest speaker. His name's Justin Hutz. He's a ministry partner in Chad. Very good communicator, somebody that we love. He and his wife, Sarah, and their kids have been a part of our ministry in Chad for a really long time in North Africa. And uh, so it'll be a privilege uh, to hear him preach. And then we have a couple other pastors that will be preaching throughout this 12-week long series on the church. If ever there was a time to, to maybe visit a church for the first time and figure out what the church is all about, uh, this local church called Golden Hills, I'm telling you what, this is the series to be at because we're going to talk about uh, the church in general. We're going to look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about this concept of the church. We're going to study theology together. We're going to talk about some practical things. You're going to hopefully uh, learn some new things and some other things will be challenging. It's just going to be a really good uh, series together, 12 weeks long as we uh, unpack the church. Um, let me let you know about one thing. Pastor Matt Pierce wanted me to pass this along to you all. He's going to, he, after each of the services, he's out to the connecting point. When you head out, you make a left and at the connecting point, Pastor Matt Pierce will be out there. But we are launching what is called the Care and Support Group Ministry. And uh, the Care and Support Group Ministry has um, like five or six different topics that they're going to uh, form groups around and they're going to be uh, talking with one another about gospel-centered resources to be able to navigate some of life's difficulties and pains. And so these care and support groups are beginning this week. I highly, highly encourage you uh, to look through the offerings that we have and, uh, and prayerfully consider whether or not the Lord may be calling you to that, um, one of those ministries to help you work through some hard, hard issues like grief and pain and forgiveness and all kinds of things. So I want to let you know that that's available and I want to encourage you to find out more. That was in our little resource email we sent out on Thursdays or in our bulletin. You can find out more information there as well. Hey, with this new 12-week series, here's the reality, is I, uh, I've been asked multiple times over the years, whenever I preach on the church, why are you doing this? <laughs> um, if there's anything we know well, it's church. Many of us go a lot, sometimes multiple times a week. Um, so the one thing we don't need to be told about is church. We already got that in the bag. We're good. But the reality is this, um, I don't think you know the church as well as you think you might. Um, and I'll give one illustration for this, which comes from my life in uh, baseball, which seems like a lifetime ago. But I played baseball at Bible University, and uh, I played baseball from when I was three to when I finally went to Biola at the age of 20. So I played baseball for 17 years. That means I kind of knew some stuff about how to play and all this kind of stuff. I wouldn't have got a scholarship had that not been true. So I showed up on Biola's campus thinking to myself, I've been playing a long time, I've been uh, pretty good at it, um, and, and so I don't have much to learn, it's just about just going out and, and just, you know, doing my thing. And then uh, I was introduced to the coaching staff, which was hilarious to me, in the sense that here I was thinking I already knew the game of baseball, and I didn't have much more to learn, maybe a couple tweaks here and there, and I was introduced to the head coach who played in the major leagues for 13 seasons. Um, we had an infield instructor who had won multiple gold gloves in the major leagues. We had a, a hitting instructor uh, who had won a couple of silver slugger awards, which means in the major leagues, which means he was the best offensive player at his position. Um, we also had a, one of our coaches who was a multi-time all-star and was on the cover of a Wheaties box. 
Um, and he shared a Nike poster with Bo Jackson. Or, yeah, with Bo Jackson. And so anyways, uh, it's one of those things like uh, when you show up and this is what you've been experienced or what you've been exposed to, it kind of humbles you. And I began to realize, oh, I don't know baseball as well as I thought I did. Because you and I understand that sometimes just because we are really familiar with something, we can convince ourselves that we are experts in it, which isn't always true. For instance, we just watched the Olympics and people were running and swimming. If I started chasing any of you, you probably could get up and run. But the manner in which you run may be better or not so good. Uh, relative to people who know how to run properly. So just because you can run doesn't mean you're an expert in running. Same with swimming. Just because you can doggy paddle around the pool doesn't mean you're a swimmer. It just means you know enough not to drown. (laughs) So familiarity is not the same as expertise. You and I have been going to church for a long time. Many of you have been going a lot longer than other people. Some of you are really new. Regardless of how much you've been around church, it is easy for you to conclude, since I am so familiar, I am therefore an expert. And I want to challenge that way of thinking and saying, actually, I highly doubt that. Um, There are so many new things to learn about the concept and the doctrine of the church that when I was putting this 12-week series together, I I literally have a notebook full of quotes and ideas and thoughts of things I didn't even think of. Having been in the church for 20 plus years, serving in multiple denominations, having formal theological education for 20 years, I've been reading about church history on my own just for fun. That's how weird I am. I'm still learning new stuff. And I know some of you exceed me in all of those things. But the reality is we still have much to learn. I guarantee you, I said this at the first service, I guarantee you like the men's warehouse, man, I guarantee you that there are things that we are going to learn and things I'm going to say which you will disagree with. But I'm okay with that so long as you have good reasons to disagree. Just because you feel like it's not right, that's not an argument. And if you can't show from the Bible why you disagree, then then maybe, maybe you don't have good reasons and perhaps we can change our mind. And so there will be things that you will feel uncomfortable with. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure after conversations between the services, today may be one of those days where it may get uncomfortable. But I also, conversely, I don't guarantee, but I, I, I'm fairly confident that you will discover something new. And my prayer and hope for all of us, and I pray and hope that each of us will pray for each other, that the new things we discover about each other in the church and Jesus and his bride, that they would be compelling new lessons that will grow our affection for each other and for Christ, and that you will, at the end, be so grateful for having studied the church together. That's my prayer and hope. But along the way, there will be growing pains. I recognize that. But hang with me, okay? Hang with me through this. So here's how the sermon's gonna work. The first thing I'm gonna do is give you three reasons why we should even bother with learning about the church in the first place. What's what's even the point? So three reasons. Then we're gonna go and we're gonna tackle something which is important 
and that is the manner in which we use the word church. Because many of us today, we use the word church as a whole host of things. It's a building or facility. It's a gathering. It's, I mean, it's an organization, but it's at the same time a group of people. It's all kinds of stuff. So we need to sort out that. And we need to figure out what that word means and how it's used in the Bible. So that way we can be a little more accurate with our usage. The third thing we're going to do is then, having that established, we're going to look at five different natures of the church. That means... Um, kind of like factors or, or ingredients or elements, but I really mean the word nature. It's it, what is essential about the church. And so we'll look at five essential natures um, about the church itself. All right, here we go. Why bother learning about the church? And by the way, you see Ephesians chapter two, verses 13 to 22. We'll get there, I promise you. We'll get there. That is gonna be the text for the five natures of the church that are important, but let's start some groundwork stuff first. So three reasons why bothering to learn about church is worth it. Number one is this, is our appreciation and association with anything increases with a greater understanding of it. And what I mean is this, is the better you understand the thing, the more you will appreciate it. The more you understand the nuances and the, and the complexity of something, the more you will actually want to associate with it. I used to watch this TV show. It's a Canadian TV show called How It's Made. You ever seen this? How It's Made, super fun, man. You watch it and you're like, I never knew. And you can watch things like how they make a CD. And for those of you who are young, it's, it's a round thing with a hole in the middle. And uh, you pop it into a CD player and music pops out. It's amazing technology. But how do you make a CD? Like, that's amazing to me. And uh, it made me so appreciate CDs more than ever before. I, I saw an episode with Andy's mints. You know what I'm talking about? These little mints. Mm. <laughs> so good. I've always liked Andy mints. How, how, however, after watching that show, I'm like, oh, I have to honor these people's crafts. I need to go to the store and get some Andy's mints. <laughs> I love Andy's mints. I freeze them and eat them. They're delicious. And I discovered the more I understood the complexity behind how these things were made, the more I appreciated them. And the same is with church. The more you understand the nuance, the more you understand the complexity of the church, the more you understand how it's to function and purpose and all the rest, the more you will appreciate it. And I believe the more you will yearn to associate with it. Number two reason is because God has designed the church to be a countercultural community. We just learned for five weeks in our series, Witness with Wisdom, about kind of the cultural strongholds in our society today. Individualism is one of them. Narcissism, com consumerism, a lot of this kind of stuff is very popular, very powerful in our culture today. But God has designed the church to be countercultural. That is, he's called it to be different. You're supposed to be weird. So here's how Jesus put it. He was praying for the disciples and all who would believe. He says, I've given them your word and the, word has, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I want to point out this word sanctify. Notice this in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In verse 19, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That word sanctified literally means to be made holy. But another way to think of it is to be made separate. To be distinct. And so Jesus is praying for all those who would believe in him that through the word of God that we would emerge as different, distinct, set apart, holy people, which is unlike the world. Did you guys see that? Jesus' whole desire for his church is that we would be distinct and holy. We would not be conformed to the pattern of this world. We would be counter-cultural to the world, different. We would stand out. Or, as you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the beginning, Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, and that will be important. We'll come back to it that uh, there's a church in a specific city called Corinth. And he's writing to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That is, those who are set apart in Christ Jesus. Those who are made holy through faith in Jesus. Who are called to be saints. And that word, it means holy ones or set apart ones. It's connected to sanctified. There we, as the church, but this church in Corinth, are called to be saints together. Together. That is what they're called to be. Together. With all those who are in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So in other words, Jesus wants his church to be different, set apart, unique, from the world. And in fact, that sanctification, that being set apart, can only come in Jesus Christ and God desires for us to have that identity of being saints together. Now, how exactly can the world be countercultural? I love what Brett McCracken writes in his book, The Wisdom Pyramid, about the church, especially about the whole individualism. He says this, a church community is countercultural because it frees you from the crushing weight of self-obsession it frees you to be part of something bigger than yourself with people who are not like you it frees you from the bias confirming bubbles of only being exposed to like-minded people who always affirm but never challenge you it frees you from the burden of being accountable only to yourself whatever it is you believe how you like to worship how you interpret the bible how you want to live and so on In an age of nauseating narcissism where everyone clamors for stardom and Instagram likes, the church humbles us because it weakly reminds us this is not about you. This is about God. You are welcome here. You are wanted here. Your presence in the body is important. You are part of the story of redemption. But God is the star, not you. What a freeing and wonderful thing that is the church can be such a cross-cultural community so distinct and so unique in our culture because it's the one entity one entity in our culture today that doesn't make the whole thing about you it's like no no no. you're part of it but God is the one who captivates our focus not self 
And that is liberating. Given what we talked about the last five weeks, it's absolutely liberating. So let's study the church because God has designed the church to be countercultural and therefore we need to know how to be more countercultural, which is we need to know how to be better ourselves. Third reason is we need to study the church. Why we should even bother it? Because our hearts are formed by church as it becomes a habit for us. Last week we talked about how uh, our habits form our hearts. Remember that? What you do by way of habit will shape what you love and long for and you desire. So, if church that is gathering with the saints that we're called to do is a part of your regular routine, your habit, then your heart will be formed by that. However, if you do not make gathering with the saints a regular part of your life, you will develop different habits and therefore your heart will be shaped in a different way. Here's how the author of Hebrews put it. Let us consider... Let us think intently about how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, in this text, some people had created a new habit, and their habit was, let's not bother meeting together. And that habit then, therefore, creates a new heart. It creates new longings, new loves, and new desires. Now, for me to quote this text is really interesting because many of you were around this last year during the COVID, and uh, I can't tell you how many people quoted to me this text. Um, They didn't quite understand what it means, but they quoted it nonetheless because anytime you can quote the Bible, it's always like, that's your, you can really mow people down with that. Um, And so I would would help them to understand that the word habit here means an an intentional routine that is developed over time. But we have other words in the Bible to describe something that happens to you where you break your routine because of providential circumstances. Now, providential circumstances, we know this because of our insurance uh, culture that we live in. Uh, We call them acts of God. You've heard this? Like you have floods and fires and earthquakes and pandemics and things like this. These are acts of God. These are providential hindrances. If we have a massive earthquake and the building falls and collapses, uh, we can't meet in here anymore. We'd have to meet outside because there's a providential hindrance. Worldwide pandemic is similar to, a, to that. It's a providential hindrance. So... We as a church, if you remember this, we started to do video church. And oh, how I hated it. Because I preached right here into a camera and the whole room was pitch black. And I didn't know whether this made sense or it was connecting. I would look into the camera expecting something in return. Nothing. The guys who were here helping with the sound and lighting, they're sitting in the booth up there. I don't know what they're doing. We recorded on a Friday. It was like, this is lame. I hate this. And if you remember at the beginning or the end of every video, I would say something like this. I can't wait to see you all in person because this is not how God intended his church to work. Do you remember me saying that? 
It was all the time. And in fact, somebody emailed us and was like, can you stop saying that? We know, we get it. (laughs) And it's like, no, I want you to remember that this is not how God intended his church to function. And the moment we are lawfully allowed to gather back together, we are going to do so. And lo and behold, the moment we were able to, we were the first church in our area to begin to meet in person. Now, okay. The reason why we did that, why we spent so much time and energy and resources to make sure that we could meet is because we knew verse 25 is true. If you create a habit of not being together in person, face to face, where you can fellowship and break bread together and baptize and pray and all the rest. If you make that a habit of just sitting home watching on on TV or you make it a habit where you watch it on Tuesday or something like that all by yourself where you're not singing and you're not fellowshipping. Your heart is going to be like, I don't know, the, uh, it's just going to be bad. You won't long for the people of God. You won't want the people of God. And you will begin to love things which you ought not to love. And so what I would say quite simply is video church is not ideal. And let me say it even, even worse. Video church is not good in the sense that it does not do what God designed the church to do. Does that make sense? Now, if you are a providentially hindered person from being at church, it can be helpful, but still less than ideal. Yeah? All right. So, okay, all right. Uh, I got to keep going. We need to develop good habits of meeting together because in meeting together, We will develop our hearts to long for each other, to love each other, and to want to be around each other. There is a major problem, as we are going to see in a moment, if you, as a Christian, do not want to be with the people of God. It's a big problem. Why? Well, let's talk about the word church. Uh, In our culture today, uh, many of us use the church referring to the facility. So we have this big building, it's a facility, we call it the church. I'll meet you at the church. I'll meet you in the church parking lot, that kind of thing. Um, We also use the word church to kind of refer to an organization. So we say, well, the church won't let me. Like, so like you all right here won't let these people do stuff, which is not what they mean. What they mean is, you know, there's red tape and there's, there's all this stuff. And so the church, it's an organization. Or some people will think of the church as the organism. They will only think of the church as like, oh, we don't need elders. We don't need deacons. We don't need church polity. You don't need business meetings. Just be the church, man. And so it's something similar to get your ukulele, get your mandolin, get your guitar, build a fire, Get your moccasins on, (laughs) sit around the campfire and spontaneously sing and pray and that's church. And so we think of it in that way. There's many other ways we could probably think of it, but I'm just going to use the most popular. Or we think of the church explicitly, and this is the most catastrophic in my mind. We think of the church as a Sunday morning event of which we are spectators 
And we drive in and we sit down and we then consume a particular performance and then we let the people who performed on the stage know whether or not they performed well. Am I wrong? No. That is typically in America how we view church. It's optional. It's consumeristic in orientation. It's primarily performance-based. And uh, I am a mere spectator. And if you don't do what I want, I will withhold my tithes and offerings or I will go to a place that will better meet my needs. That is why we use the phrase church shopping. You ever thought about that? How might using that phrase shape our hearts? I'm just church shopping. Are you really church shopping? Is that what you want to say? I'm just a consumer looking for spiritual goods and services that will fit my, fit my needs. That's literally how you view the church? Uh-oh. That's probably not good. So what do we mean by church? Well, it's a Greek word, ekklesia. And I'm going to use some nerdy stuff, okay? Just, I get it. Ekklesia. It's a Greek word. It's a compound word. Ek is the prefix. Ek in Greek means out. Klesia is uh, from the root verb kaleo, which means call, call out. So when you put the two together, ek and kaleo, it's ekklesia. It means from, called out. Or in other words, simply the called out ones. The called out ones. Um, Let me make it even easier, connecting it with Jesus' John 17 prayer. It is those who are called out from the world to be a part of God's kingdom. You're called out from the world and you're called to the kingdom of God. That's Colossians 1.13. But also ecclesia more literally and basically means assembly or gathering. And what that means, Acts 19, um, it can also mean like a riot. <laughs> uh, this is great. Acts 19, look, they're in, a, in Ephesus, man, there's big things happening. People are going nuts. Some were crying one thing, some crying another for the assembly, that is the riot, was in confusion. And that word assembly there is, re, is the word ecclesia or church. And most of them did not know what they had come, what they had come together for. So there's a big riot that breaks out in Ephesus. People are screaming and yelling. Nobody knows what's going on. Why are we here? I don't know. Just yell. All right. Nah! And what they were doing was church. They were gathering. They were assembled. They were ecclesia. So if you put these two concepts together, called out ones, and then those who assemble, what you would have in, uh, as a proper understanding of, of the word church is that church are those who are called out of the world in Jesus' name to gather in Jesus' name. They're called out from the world in Jesus' name to gather in Jesus' name. Let me put it differently. The church is the called and the collected. My favorite Christian hip-hop album. Look it up. You're like, I don't listen to that ungodly music. Eh. Grow up. It's a good one. (laughs) Called and collected. It's used uh, in the New Testament. It's used a whole bunch of times. 
And in two particular times, it's used to refer to the Old Testament people of God who assemble. That is, they gather. They are a congregation. And that's the word that is used in Greek as a translation of Hebrew to help understand what is meant when the people of God gather. Well, that's church. So inherent to the concept of church is the notion of gathering, assembling, being together is essential to our understanding of church. In the New Testament, uh, the, the word ecclesia is used 114 times, 114 times. Three times in Acts 19 where it's talking about a riot. Uh, twice it's talking about the Old Testament assembly or gathering and then the other 109 times it's used to describe a particular gathering of people who are Christians it's an assembly okay it's an assembly it could be a heavenly assembly in Hebrews chapter 12 where it's all the Christians who ever lived gathered together it could be the new heavens and new earth where all of the people who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb are together singing but they're always together They're always assembled. They're never isolated or individual. And it comes in two parts. One is a local component and one is a universal component. Let's look at the local component first. This is from the book of Philemon, where Paul writes a prisoner for Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother. He writes to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. That is, ecclesia, the called out ones from the world who are called together in Jesus' name who meet in your house. Or you have like in Galatians, if you jump down to uh, verse 2, Paul identifies himself as the writer and he says he's writing to all the brothers uh, and all the brothers who are with him are the ones who are helping to write this and he's writing to the churches of Galatia. That is, he is writing to the individual gatherings in the region of Galatia. Galatia is a big region. It's kind of like a state, like California. It's like somebody like the Apostle Paul is like, hey, I'm writing to the churches of California. And you're like, okay. He's not writing to any one church, but he's writing to a collection of churches. But we would also understand the church in Bakersfield is included. The church in, I don't know, Fresno is included. The church in Vacaville is included. But it's always a gathered group of Christians. We saw that same kind of thing in 1 Corinthians, if you remember chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. It's a local, specific place. But we also understand that the church can mean um, what is called the universal church, and that is Christians who assemble from all times and all places. That is people who live in different countries and nations, but they also live at different times. So the universal church is a collection of all the Christians who ever lived from the first century to the 21st century, from the fourth century to the 14th to the 24th in the future. It's all those who are in Africa, in Asia, in North America and South America. Whoever was a Christian ever in their life, these people are called the church, the universal church. And definitely the Bible describes that, especially. Here we have two examples. Jesus tells Peter that you are Peter, and on this rock, 
And he's referring to his confession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, on this rock, this confession, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Or Paul is uh, talking to the Ephesian elders on the shores of Miletus in Acts chapter 20. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So this is a unique text because Paul is saying, look, you as the elders of the church in Ephesus, you need to protect your local congregation, your local church. Protect them, watch over them. But then he says that Jesus has obtained this church with his blood. So did Jesus die a bunch of deaths in order to purchase a bunch of churches? No. One death, one shed blood, all the churches. And so there we see a connection between the universal church bought by Jesus' blood with the local church, particularly the one in Ephesus. One other example, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. How? Well, in the way in which Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificially, self-giving love. And why did he do that? So that he might, here's our word again, sanctify her, set her apart, make her different and unique, keep the church weird. He cleanses the church with the washing of water with the word because that's how we get sanctified. That's how we get set apart is we have more of God's word in us. And the whole reason is so he can present the whole church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. I do know what God's will for your life is and here it is. Be holy because God is holy. And that's what we see. The whole point of you being redeemed is so you can be holy. As we're going to sing during our communion time, the whole reason why Jesus sheds his blood to cleanse us and forgive, uh, forgive us of our sins is so that we would become a church who goes and sins no more. Jesus didn't die for you so you can go send your brains out and not have guilt about it. Jesus died for you so that you could be set free from your sin and you can have the Holy Spirit indwelling you so you can live holy lives. Different, set apart, cleansed, distinct. So it's not just any one local church that Jesus says he will build. It is not any one local church that Jesus has obtained with his blood. Nor is it any one local church that Jesus intends to sanctify, cleanse, and wash. It is the church at large, the universal church. Now some might say, yeah, that's, that's my kind of church. I like that. I've heard this countless times. I can't even number how many times I've heard this. I would, I would hear people say, I don't need to bother about participating or associating with the local church, for instance, like Golden Hills, because my membership is in the universal church. That's what really matters. And I would say, huh? Here's why. The only way to express your membership in the universal church is going to be through your participation in the local church. That's it. Maybe you don't believe me. Let's go back to baseball. What else? I don't know much else. So let's go back to baseball. If somebody came up to me and they're like, Pastor Phil, I'm a baseball player. My first question is, what team do you play on? And if they said, oh, I don't, I don't have a team. 
I just throw by myself in the field and I throw the ball up and I hit it and I run the bases. Now, if this was a little guy, like a six-year-old, I'd be like, keep doing that. You're going to get better and better. If this is a guy who's in his 60s, I'd be like, you need a friend. <laughs> like you, you need some help, man. Because we know inherently that to be a baseball player means you are playing a game which is a team sport. You cannot be a baseball player not on a team. You have to be identifying with the team. Now, is the team always together, always playing baseball at all times? No. Sometimes they get days off. That doesn't make you not a part of the team. It just means right now the team isn't playing baseball. Likewise, if somebody says, I am a Christian, I'm a member of the universal church, that's good enough. I would ask, what local church are you a part of? Oh, I'm not a part of a local church. Well, that's weird. To use my baseball analogy, you're not in the game then. You're not, you're, not, you're not part of what's going on. Now, how in the world could I possibly say that? It's because there is no possible way for you to obey the commandments found in the New Testament that feature the two English words, one another. You cannot obey any of those. In a local church capacity only. Let me ask you the question. How in the world do you practice hospitality to the Christians of the 4th century today? What about the 24th century? Which is yet to come. I get it. How do you practice hospitality? How do you forgive the, the, the Christians in Angola who you've never met? How are you teaching the Christians in, I don't know, North Dakota. We assume there's Christians there. How do you teach them? Um, how are you exactly going about encouraging, rebuking, or correcting all of those Christians in Armenia? What are you active, actively doing? How are you loving the church in Appalachia? You see, practically speaking... The only way to be obedient to the commands of God in the New Testament, to love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, show hospitality to one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, admonish one another, encourage one another. I've already said that. I don't care. Keep going. But how you do all of that, the only way to obey those is through your participation and association with a local church, which is specific and identifiable. That's it. But if we say, nah, local church, eh, ain't got time for that, Disneyland's next weekend, or whatever, then what we're saying is, no, I don't need to obey what God has asked me to do, and therefore I don't need to be holy. My participation is with the universal church, which is a bizarre thing to say, because we know the universal church is called to be holy. And how are you holy? You obey God. And what kind of obedience do you do? I don't know. Love your church. So, are you guys tracking with me? All right, I'm just, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse. Let's, um, so hopefully you're understanding that you have to be associated with some sort of local church if you're going to claim to be a member of the universal church. 
There's no other way or else you're out the game. And obviously I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak, because you're all here today. And if we make a habit of not associating, participating, fellowshipping, breaking bread, committing ourselves, singing to one another, encouraging one another with the local church, if we make it a habit of not being engaged in that, then you will make a habit of living in disobedience. And I'm not sure that's your best life. But the Bible doesn't always talk about the church by using the word church. Sometimes it's at the concept level. And what I mean by that is sometimes the Bible is talking about the church without ever using the word for us to understand what it's like. One example, in the new heavens and new earth, man, you have this amazing vision of singing where all the saints are gathered and they're singing to the Lord Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That is the universal church. It doesn't even use the word church, but that's what that is. People from every tongue, tribe, nation and people group. I know it doesn't say exactly that. I memorized it in the NIV. Give me, some, give me a break. But everyone. So now let's talk about the five natures of the church. The five natures. And that comes from Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 13. And the first nature of the church that I want you to understand is that the church is the blood-bought people of God. We have to start there. Most basic. We are the blood-bought people of God. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, now in Christ Jesus, that is through faith in Jesus Christ and because of his finished work on the cross and resurrection, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off from God because of sin, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We cannot come to God apart from the blood of Christ. Jesus, through his shed blood on the cross, gave us a way to access God. And so those of us who are far away from God, we are brought near to God because of Jesus' shed blood. And we remember Acts 20, 28, that Jesus purchased the church through his blood. But it's not just you and I as individuals, which is, I have to say, is one of the odd things about American Christianity today is it's so hyper-individualistic at the expense of the collective side of it. Look at how Titus 2 talks about the church without using the word. That God gave, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all sin, lawlessness, and to purify, there's that word again, sanctify, set apart, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you notice, redemption is meant to free you from your sin and to free you to holiness. And the whole thing is so that many people, not just you, will experience this and experience it together. That's what it means to be a people. We are a people as Americans. A people. Plural. Now... <laughs> Today, man, we have so individualistically 
thought of the church that it's, it's just, it's mind-blowing to think that, I'm going to say this and it sounds outrageous to you perhaps, your first and primary identity is not about you having a personal relationship with Jesus. It's about you being connected to a group of people. Whoa. But in our culture today, it's like, hey, God has a wonderful plan for your life, you as an individual. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And everything is individually packaged. It's all about your own personal experience. But the Bible actually flips that on its head and says, no, 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 the first and most important thing about you is that you're a part of something bigger than you. That you're a part of a people. You're a part of a kingdom. You're a part of a church. Now, it doesn't make you as an individual not true, meaning, oh, so I don't matter? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you having a personal relationship with Jesus is not important. I'm just saying there's more than just that. So that's true, yes, yes and amen. You, right here, right now, can have a relationship with God Almighty who spoke the universe into existence. But there is more to be had than just that. You are also called to be part of a people. And therefore, your identity is derived from that. Because it's a people for his own possession. That is, you are the people of God. God is the one who creates this people. God is the one who did what was necessary to make it possible. Therefore, our identity is rooted in God's act of saving us, plural, so that we are a blood-bought people. Amazing. Let's go to number two. Second nature that I want you to understand is that this church, this, this blood-bought people of God is a new creation. Oops. Let's go to verse uh, 14 through 15. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In this context of Ephesians 2, he's talking about the racial and ethnic tension between the Jews and the non-Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles. And they hated each other. Culturally, they hated each other. Ethnically, they hated each other. Geographically, they didn't want anything to do with each other. And so when all of a sudden the church is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, each of them like, like let's just say, for instance, if you're sitting here like this side, you're all Jews, and this side would be all Gentiles, and they would just glare at each other. And they would watch whether or not you're raising your hands high enough. Are they singing loud enough? No, typical Jews, yeah, Or typical Gentiles, look at them. And there was this tension in the church. And so Paul writes the book of Galatians. Paul writes this chapter of Ephesians to say, actually, in the church, the tension between ethnic and cultural hostilities that creates this dividing wall of hostility in Jesus Christ, that dividing wall of hostility has come crumbling down. And now it lies in a heap of rubble. Because no longer in the church do we identify with 
our own personal identities above and against somebody else. Instead, it's not like, look at me, a particular ethnic or cultural whatever, and and I'm going to look at disdain or I'm going to, you know, like suspicion of somebody else who's different than me. In the church, by the blood of Jesus, Jesus is drawing all people to himself so that in the common assembly, there's people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And what's so beautiful about this is the previous way of life, if you look in verse 15, the previous way of life where there are two distinct people who don't like each other, in Jesus Christ there is now peace and no longer is there two distinct people who hate each other, there's only one new person that stands in its place. That word man that's there could be rendered race, which means there's a brand new race of people There's a brand new race of people, which is an amazing truth that we no longer look at each other in the worldly way of divisiveness where you're like, you're trying to, oh, so you're kind of like this, 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 and then, okay, you go over there. Oh, you have these characteristics? Okay, you go over there. In the church, it's like, I don't care. By the blood of Jesus, come. We welcome everyone. Everyone. So when you came in this morning, you saw, uh, hopefully you saw, unless you came in another way, it's like a John 10 thing. Uh, anyways, it's a bad pastor joke. My wife's going to hit me later. Anyways, um, in, the, in the lobby, you see these uh, stained glass images. Go look at them. What's amazing is we want you to understand that you're coming into the church to gather underneath the cloud of witnesses of the historical church that has gone before us. You are welcomed in this place. But you are welcomed in this place because you are from whatever tribe, whatever nation, whatever language, whatever socioeconomic background, whether you are married or you are single, whether you are young or you are old, whether you are educated or uneducated, whether you are white or black or whatever, you are welcomed in this place. Because God is doing something new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Many of you have this maybe even memorized. I know some people with it tattooed tattooed on their body. But we almost always interpret verse 17 individualistic. I am a new creation. I have my old past life gone and I have this new, you know, dreams to whatever. But look at verse 18. All this, all this new creation talk is from God, who through Christ reconciled, what is the pronoun there? Us. Plural. God is doing something new in us collectively, not just individualistically, but that's true. God's doing something new in you, but you're bringing that new in you to the new of us. And so we are something brand new. And the world has no idea what category to put the church in when the church looks as it ought to, which is a multiplicity and diversity. So when the world looks at us like, well, you people from from the Philippines and from the Congo and, and from South America and El Salvador and you got people from Japan and people from India and Pakistan, you got people from England and Germany, you got people from China. You got people whose English isn't even their first language. You got people who are 
in poverty. You have people who are exceptionally wealthy. You have educated, uneducated. You got people in your church, like a bunch of 11 and 12 year olds in this room right now, by the way, we love you being here on purpose. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, you are a part of this church. You do not belong to your youth group. You belong to the church, the blood-bought people of God in whom God is doing a new work. And so we want you here. Gather with us. And so we have 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, 40-year-olds. We have teenagers. And in that moment, God is displaying for a watching world, look at how beautifully diverse my church is. Now, this is only possible as far as the demographics of any one location are possible. So there are some places where you can't be radically diverse because you just don't have the people to be diverse. If you live in a town with only 40-year-olds, you can't be like, oh, man, we don't have any teenagers here. What do you expect? You want to fly them in for the weekend? It's weird. You can only have gathered those people in the community in which you gather. So as far as possible, the church should reflect the universal church, that is to say, across ethnic lines, cultural lines, generational lines, male and female, married and single, socioeconomics. And when we come together, what we do is we're displaying the fact that we are, the third thing, the household of God. We are a family. Now, this is important to understand because many times we neglect this aspect Paul writes, in case I delay, that is, in case I don't come and meet with you, Timothy, I want you to understand what is expected of you. He says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He calls the church a household. Whoa. That means we're family. Some of you are like, oh, man, my family's messed up. (laughs) That's helpful because you have weird uncles and you have cousins that you're like, I don't really want to be associated with them. And you have people who think differently you and your own family. And you know what? All of these relationships are not relationships of choice. You didn't choose this, but you love it nonetheless. Likewise, we didn't choose our family in God and there will be people who differ from us and we will disagree and we will step on each other's toes and we will irritate each other and we will get annoyed with one another because we're family and we live in a broken world but the church is not to be a place where there's none of that stuff it's to be a place that with all that stuff We lead with forgiveness and mercy and grace. So we can be weird together. We can sin against each other, but we don't like, how dare you? No, no, that's a kind of, I got to say this carefully. Because we're not in heaven yet, I expect that some of us will sin and sin against each other. And therefore, We shouldn't be shocked. Instead, we should be quick to forgive, give mercy and grace. We should also confront and correct and rebuke. We don't run away. 
Just like in the movies, when you have a, a child who is, I don't know, acting a fool. The solution isn't for that child to just run away. The solution is that child needs to be made right with his family. The relationships need to be restored. And that's part of what it means to live in the household of God. Is, man, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And so we need to understand also that there's a way we ought to behave. Do you see that in verse 15? You ought to behave a certain way if you're a member of the church. We are adopted into the family of God by the Holy Spirit through faith. All who are led by the Spirit, Paul says, are are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out the Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Just think about that. If Jesus is an heir and I'm an heir, then he's our older brother. And if I'm an heir and you're an heir, then we're co-heirs. We should treat each other not as we are, but we should treat each other as what we will be. The most glorious thing in this world is the human being sitting next to you who bears the image of God. Do you realize that? And if you were to see, as C.S. Lewis says, if you were to see one another in their glorified, resurrected state, like right now, if all of a sudden somebody could transform and be what they're going to be, you would be prone to fall down and worship them. That's how glorious they're going to be. So let's treat each other as what we will be rather than what we are. We're redeemed and forgiven, but we still sin against each other. But one day, no more sin. Glorious freedom. And we will see each other as we really are. <laughs> Number four, leading on this whole like household thing, you understand in the household it said, as you can see, that there, uh, there's certain behaviors which are expected, which means, and uh, moms, you, you know what's up with this. There are rules in the house. And uh, we always have rules. You can't play ball in the house. The clothes go in the hamper, not on top of it. Pick up your socks when you're in the bathroom and you're taking a shower. You know, there's, there's all these, like, rules for the house. Well, there's rules in God's house. And that lends itself to this. The church is an organism and also an organization. It has both rules and order. That is the organizational pro, uh, aspect. But it also is an organism. An organism is something which is alive and has the potential to grow. That is the church. It is alive. We are alive. And we have the potential to grow. But what's interesting is our potential for growth is directly connected to how organizationally fitted we are. Let me show you this in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, and I don't have it on the screen because it's in your Bible. Just look maybe the other page or turn a page. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, that is the whole church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, that's individually, when each part is working properly, 
It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me put it negatively. If we are not working properly in the church, the church will not grow. There's a proper component to this. A proper component to this. All right, so let's jump to verse 18 through 20 of Ephesians 2. For through him, that is through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you see that family dynamic. You see also the citizenship dynamic. There's, there's an organizational component to this. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church is alive and it grows, but it grows as it is properly ordered. And one of the ways in which it is properly ordered is when it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Every building had to have a cornerstone, something by which the rest of the building would be set to. If that, like a compass, remember I talked about compass of your heart? If you're one degree off, you get way off. If you set a cornerstone and it isn't plumb and level, the whole building, it's going to topple over. But with Jesus Christ properly placed as the true cornerstone, and then the apostles and prophets serve as the foundation of the building of the church, that building will grow properly and it will be a strong building but it has to be ordered properly. It has to have what I would call as the apostles and prophets, it has to have the word of God as the foundation. Or in other words, it has to have the apostolic teaching as the foundation. Here it is, Acts 2.42. The church and the early church, here's what they did. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice the apostles' teaching, that is the gospel. Notice that comes first because that's the foundation on which everything else is built. But I also want you to see that there is a definite article, the word the, not an indefinite article like a. Listen to the difference. They devoted themselves to a form of the apostles' teaching, to a kind of fellowship, to a kind of breaking of bread, to a form of prayers. That means there's a whole bunch of possibilities. Who knows? Hey, whatever. Whatever floats your boat, whatever gets you in a fit of giggles, just whatever. Instead, it says the. There is a particularity of the apostles' teaching. There is a certain kind of fellowship, a certain kind of breaking of bread. There are a certain kind of form of prayer. You notice that? Interesting. Now, why I bring this up is because there's a lot of people nowadays who are church shopping. People moving out of state from our church. They moved three months ago, five months ago, nine months ago, and they call their email, Pastor Phil, can you help us find a church? You've been there nine months. Yeah, it's really hard. We're still church shopping. I just want to vomit every time I hear that. And so I ask the question, what are you looking for? Oh, just something for the kids, something we can really get into, something that can inspire us, people that are really, you know, outgoing. 
This is a great place of worship. Uh, does Jesus factor into that at all? Isn't it interesting that what we really, like our pecking order, what is a good church? Well, everything that ticks off my consumable desires. What about Jesus? Ah, it's a church, duh. They'll talk about Jesus, duh. No, no duh, no duh. (laughs) A church is only as good as the Jesus they preach according to the Bible. They can have the best community. They can have awesome social causes. They can have awesome lighting. They can have amazing facilities. They can have something cool for the kids. They can have a youth ministry that's super exciting. But if they get Jesus wrong, what's the point? So that's the fourth thing. Imagine the church like a vine. If you want to grow a vine, the best way to grow the vine is to build a trellis. Once you build the trellis, the vine, the organizational side of the church is the trellis, and we as the people are the vine. And so we're going to talk about this in weeks to come about all this dynamics, but we have to move on because number five is good. The church, number five, is the church is a dwelling place for God. The church is a dwelling place for God. Let's go back to Ephesians 2, verse 21 and 22. This church in whom the whole structure is being joined together, joined together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you thought when you woke up this morning, well, we got to get to the event called church where we can sit in the pew and spectate of the performance on stage and we can then consume our goods and go about our day, you have missed this text. When you went into these doors and sat in this pew, if you're a Christian today, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And our collective togetherness in this moment means that we have exponentially more of God's presence together than we did when we were driving on our way here. It doesn't mean that God wasn't with you when you were driving here. It just means you have more of them by being here than if you weren't here. Let me put it together like this for you. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. (laughs) You as individual stones, you're coming in alive and you're like, I'll sit here, boop, one stone, next stone, next stone, next stone, boom. And then we just layer it up. That's why we got a balcony, we layer it up. And now we have, this, we have this structure, we have this temple in which the presence of God is among us. It doesn't negate the fact that you were indwelled with the Holy Spirit by faith before you got here. It just means that it's rushing out of you and, and rushing all around us and it's all together. We are in the presence of God when we get together. It's amazing. 
Now, let me put it even more. To, did I already say put it together? All right, here we go. To the angel in Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus, write this. You remember there are seven churches in modern-day Turkey in Revelation 2 and 3. And listen to what is written here. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You're like, what in the world is that? The seven stars and the seven golden lampstands represent the seven local churches. Sardis, Philadelphia, Pergamum, Ephesus, and the rest. Did I read that right? Jesus walks among us? You mean when we gather together on the Lord's day and we collectively bring our living stone bodies to each other and, and we, we gather, Jesus is walking among us? <laughs> Unbelievable. That is supernatural. Brothers and sisters, if you think that just coming to church is so that we can entertain you, it's so that we can be filled with the presence of God, sit in the presence of God together, collectively contributing, not sitting back and consuming. Now, we typically think, how can I contribute to the local church when I'm not up on stage and I'm not preaching or whatever? I don't have a microphone. No, 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 no. We commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching, but do you remember there's fellowship involved? That's essential. So the people, this sounds bad. This is the awkward, ready? Okay. The people who come late and leave early and no fellowship, you're missing out on the presence of God. We, I'm going to finish with this. I'm way over. I apologize. We, as the church, are blood-bought people who God makes new in Jesus Christ. And he adopts us as children by the Spirit so that we may grow up into Christ's likeness through the gospel, becoming a dwelling place for God to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. And now we get to share communion. And what communion is, if you remember, it's when Jesus invites all those who believe in him to come to eat and to drink in his name. In fact, Paul writes this, I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you on the, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took a cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it talks about uh, communion, you'll see four separate times they use the phrase, when you come together. Let's come together. Let's eat and drink in the name of the Lord. Father, we ask that as we come now to the communion table, metaphorically speaking, as we take this cup and this and this juice in our hands and we drink it and eat it, I pray, God, that you would remind us of your presence here. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to contemplate and reflect on these truths. And I pray, Lord, that you would knit us together 
as a family. And you will build your church. And so we pray in the eating and drinking of this cup, this bread, God, that you would work in us, be present among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And like I said, the Lord Jesus invites, as the servers come up, um, I want to invite everyone who's a Christian, everyone who has repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. I want you to take one of these cups, hold on to it. We're going to eat and drink of it together to symbolize our unity in Christ, our family, household nature. If you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, please just let these go, let this go by, because this is a celebration and a participation of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And if you're not yet a Christian today, then you don't have a participation with us, nor do you have any reason to celebrate. But if you will repent and believe in Jesus even today, confessing your sins and trusting him for your salvation and forgiveness, then I would invite you to come and take one of these and you can remember and participate along with us. And so the servers will come forward and they'll hand these elements out. I ask that you again, you just hang on to it. Pastor David's gonna lead us in a song and I wanna encourage you to participate in singing or to just sit quietly and reflect and listen to these words as we prepare our hearts and minds for eating and drinking in the Lord's name.